All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages tonight. So, if I go quickly uh, through some of these, uh, if you want to know what they are, I'll come ask me afterwards. John is answering the question, as we talked about for last week, uh, last two weeks, John's answering the question, who is Jesus? And that is a good question. Uh, and I, before we get back into the book of John, I just want to pause just for a moment so we can feel the weight of John's book and appreciate what John's doing. I, I do want all of us to stop and answer not necessarily the technical question of who Jesus is, but I want you to ask who Jesus is as it relates to your understanding at this very moment Because who Jesus is and who you seem to think he is actually affects the way that you think and the way that you live. That's what John's going after. So if you stop for a moment and think to you right now, your heart, your mind, your actions, who is Jesus to you? Often, if you have grown up in uh, the uh, church, Jesus is the person that's in most of the stories, if we're teaching from the New Testament. Jesus is someone that we're supposed to put our faith in. Jesus is this far away being that I know I'm supposed to love and often I do feel something towards, but as it relates to my everyday life when I do laundry, and fill up my car, and go to work, and take care of diapers, it doesn't seem as if Jesus means anything to me then. It's what I do Sundays, and then it's what I want to do throughout the rest of the week. But when I, when I were, if I were to answer the question, who is Jesus? If you were to answer the question, who is Jesus? It would be interesting if we were willing to not give the patent answer the right answer, but if we were to give the heartfelt answer from our heart, what would, it, what would we come up with? And this is why expositing the word, verse by verse, explaining what the passage says to us so that it can affect us, is so important. Because if I were just to pick topics throughout the year and just randomly whatever I felt like the church might need, we may not come to answer the question, who is Jesus? What I'm so excited about from the book of John is that John's actually going to tell us who Jesus is and why it matters. So just as a quick review, so we uh, are on the same page before we move through, to continue to move through the book of John. The first five verses are really a theological overview, and John takes this, these, this small little sentence and packs in uh, the world. <laughs> he, he packs in everything that there is related to God's relationship to us. They'll figure it out. Don't worry. <laughs> they'll go around. It's all good. Uh, they'll, everything that relates from creation to the deity of God to salvation, all of it is impacted into one. And so what you'll notice we've taken a lot of time in the first three, four verses uh, on Sunday nights, starting in... Uh, wow, I guess it's going to be four weeks, something like that. 
we will be moving a lot faster because we get to get into the actual narratives, the the story and history behind it. But last week, we talked about Jesus as far as the importance of who he is as God. And we talked about the Nicene Creed and why it is that this, this important fight was there because the moment that God that Jesus is no longer God, he no longer has the power to save, he no longer has the abilities to keep the promises that he has made. And so tonight, we continue in that line, and we continue in that thought, but John's going to bring out a more personal part of this relationship, and really, he sets out uh, in the last two verses, verses 4 and 5, this connection between the entire book, the beginning of the book, all the way to the end of the book. So we're going to go ahead and read through the first five verses again, just to get us back to where we were. So Genesis 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we come as children seeking once again to be reminded of what we forget so quickly and so easily, is that your love for us, your protection, your grace towards us cannot be earned. It is unmerited, and you give it to us unconditionally. And may we be reminded of that once again in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it goes back up to verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What John is setting up is the outline, as I said before, and in part of his outline of what the book is about to give us is that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. So not only is it Jesus that holds creation in his hands, John constantly points back to the book of beginnings, which is the book of Genesis, uses this language quite a bit. He's going to uh, even use the book of Job here in a little bit. The book of beginnings saying that Jesus is God. He's from the beginning. And not only that, but our existence as human beings, we are birthed, we are created from him, and no creation can create. Therefore, God is not a creation. Jesus is not a creation. But the, what the point of it here that, that sets in is that he's also the sustainer of your life. He's the one that keeps you and all creation running. Without God and his ability through Jesus Christ to sustain the world, it would all collapse. It would all fall in on itself. So throughout Scripture, as a matter of fact, Job 12.10 says, In his hand, speaking of Christ, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So God holds and keeps or sustains everything within its place. So we, in hindsight, see John's point. But those who Jesus is talking to, the narratives, the stories that John's about to tell us about, they are standing, seeing, touching Jesus in the flesh. And John is saying the the Pharisees and the Jews who saw Jesus in the flesh didn't even comprehend that he was keeping them alive at the moment. So he starts the story before he even begins. The introduction uh, text, as you would say, in a movie to set the scene. This is God in the flesh. He sustains their life 
and yet they get here they look at him and say who is this guy isn't he the isn't he the son of the carpenter how is it that he claims to be almighty how is it he claims to be god so who is jesus well john says jesus is our creator and the one who sustains who holds our very breath in his hand um i often think on a day-to-day basis we there is this moment where uh, you don't feel the weight of how we rely on God for everything. So we often talk about relying on God for our salvation and for blessings and for prayer requests. But there is not a part of our life that isn't controlled by Jesus. Everything is controlled by him. So the moment you get up from this chair and you walk out and you continue your week on, Every step and every breath you take is absolutely controlled by Jesus. He sustains us. He holds us together. And often there can, there can be that moment or that feel of, does he even know what's going on? And I have to step back and say, does he not only, going, does he not only know what's going on? He's the one who keeps it going on. <laughs> Without him, nothing goes on. He is very aware of all that goes on. So John points to the deed of Christ because it's the very attribute they deny. It's the very, uh, as Jesus is standing for the Pharisees, as he's standing before the Jews, the one that's been prophesied to come, they look at him, and uh, as we can see in verse 5, they do not see him. Look at verse uh, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this concept of light and darkness is used all throughout John's book. Uh, over 30, I think it's 34, 35 times John uses Jesus as it relates to uh, him being the light, Jesus being the light. Uh, and the, again, this is a reference back to the book of beginnings, back to Genesis, where it's described that the earth began and it was full of darkness. And if Jesus is the creator, as he's been described, Jesus brought forth light into the world physically. And what John is using as a parallel here, not only did Jesus bring physical light into the world, but he brought also spiritual light. So he's saying, and and if you think about it from a scientific standpoint, what is darkness? It's the absence of what? It's the absence of light. And so what we're going to see is Jesus, who is light, not only is he's described the light of men and the light in the darkness, So he is coming into the presence of the very darkness, and they don't even perceive it. They don't even see it. Uh, I'm just going to read through the section where John begins to just constantly point out that the sustainer of life and the giver of light, what's the the acknowledgement of who God is, is standing before them, those who claim to be righteous before God, those who claim to be obeying the law, and they don't even see it. For instance, turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 19. So John three nineteen, And he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." Who is it that ended up killing Jesus? It was the religious society who was blinded and could not see the light. And they're the ones who hated Jesus so much they killed him. 
Right? So John is even in verse 3 foretelling what's about to happen later on in the book of John. Look at verse, uh, go, turn over to chapter 18 in verse 12. 1812, he says that again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but I will have the light, but will have the light of life. And turn over to John chapter 12, verse 35. John 12, 35. It says, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. For while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Beginning to use this language of blindness. Or look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whosoever, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And in Matthew 13, 13, you have to turn there. Jesus is explaining why he's standing there as the Messiah And they don't even accept him. It says, this is why I speak to them in parables and to stories. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Uh, Real quick, uh, just quoting from Romans is giving this example of Paul even using this illustration of the darkness of men. And understand that what, before we move on, what he's talking about here is the darkness as it relates to our blindness spiritually. We are not capable because of our sin, the inherited sin that we have from Adam. We are not able to see Jesus Christ as he has been portrayed. So John 3.10 says this, that is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, again, darkness. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So John is introducing an important doctrine to us right in the beginning. He's, again, he's setting up this intro, this intro for us to see Jesus as God. And the doctrine he's setting up for us is uh, uh, what we call in the Reformed world total depravity. Now that word uh, can mean a lot of things to different people. It's a confusing doctrine at times. Sometimes people, when they hear that, they think, Total depravity means humanity is completely as evil as they possibly can be. They're totally depraved or ripped from anything good or righteous. Uh, That's not what's going on here. And that's not what that doctrine necessarily means. Another way of describing it, uh, which I steal from R.C. Sproul, is total inability. And that's what definitely is going on here. That's what's being described here. It's not that humans are completely as evil as possible. And it's definitely not that we are not able to perform good deeds, uh, or that our soul is neutral. Uh, Pelagian came in and tried to teach that uh, we are born neutral as it relates to sin, and then once we choose to sin, we become sinners. That's not true. We are told that we are born in Adam and that everyone is born under sin. And so what total depravity or total inability means is that you and I are incapable of doing any righteous acts and incapable of producing any faith within ourselves. So that means you can look at humanity, and humanity actually is capable of doing good. And we see this all of the time. You don't need Jesus to do things that are morally correct. Uh, You and I can experience this in the workplace and our neighbors, where they do things that are kind and protective, and they hate evil as we do. Uh, I don't really know of anyone, whether you're, it doesn't matter the religion that you are a part of, uh, that would look at what happened in Las Vegas and think that was a good thing. 
right? You can look at that and say, no, that is evil. So even evil men can observe evil in the world. So that's not what total depravity means. And that's not what's uh, what's going on here in the book of John when he says that light entered into darkness. It wasn't that men are running around uh, committing evils to the point to where there is no restraint. What he's talking about is this. It's Good, not in comparison to humanity. Often, if you were to go ask somebody who's probably either an atheist or an agnostic, and you say, do you think men by nature are typically good? And for the most part, the answers I've got from that is yes. Man is good, for the most part. Uh, They have blunders here and there. That's not the way we have to measure humanity. And we do often do this. We measure how well we're doing. Uh, I had a great conversation with the college students as it relates to the shooting uh, in Vegas and just the amount of evil that was demonstrated there and how horrendous that was. And then we started talking about evil throughout history and how horrendous uh, the, the horrible acts that humans have done to each other throughout history, killing millions of people, including killing millions of babies. Well, if you compare yourself on that level, then sure, you can somehow create within yourself a goodness or a righteousness. But when God is describing, and and what John is describing here, is darkness being the inability to obey God's law perfectly at all. Thou shalt not lie. Some of us, most of the time, go throughout the day not lying. So, all right, we did good there. But it's not most of the time. It's perfection. It's obeying God's law completely. And the second part of that is, let's say you do perform a good work. Let's say you do do something that would possibly be glorifying to God. The problem, the second problem to this is, which is the greatest commandment of all, is to love your God with all your being. Well, there's no one who's ever existed outside of Jesus Christ who's ever loved God with all of their being. So every human being that's born is born into darkness meaning they have not the ability to obey perfectly, neither do they have the ability to love perfectly. And so when John is saying here that Jesus enters in with the light, he's entering in with that the very essence of what is needed for humanity, not only the living being of life, but also the spiritual being of life. Uh, the, I'm going to read to you real quick uh, the London Baptist Confession, which our church uh, is going through right now on Sunday mornings, teaching through that. And what you're going to understand here is, even from the confession, that God, isn't, God doesn't uh, grade us on a curve. Uh, point three in chapter six, it says, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good, Accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So men blinded by sin live in darkness. This is the metaphor that's being used, light and darkness. They don't even see how wicked they are because they have no sight to see it. And often we're so blind, we convince ourselves we're good. We can't even see the law of God for the high standard it needs to be. So John says, Jesus is the light of men. He is the sight for them to see. And John gives us a peek into the end of his book 
uh, really the end of the story, the darkness did not defeat him, or it says it did not overcome him in verse 5, because Jesus finished his work on the cross. This morning we talked about baptism. We got to experience baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so John lets us know, which is, you guys ever watch a movie and you're thinking to yourself, man, if this guy doesn't win at the end, I don't like this movie. And then they give you a little hint that it's going to all turn out. You're like, okay, now I like this movie. I'm going to watch the rest of it. Some of you are kind of weird. You like the weird endings. I'm not that guy. I like when the good guy wins. Uh, But John does this. Oh, by the way, Jesus does not lose. He is not overcome by darkness. He wins at the end. Uh, just to, I just kind of want to stop just for a moment here and um, share some, some personal thoughts as it relates to theology and uh, why a doctrine like total depravity and why it's so important for John to start his book this way. And if you go back, it'd be fun if you want to try this, go to, like, for instance, the book of Ephesians or even the book of Galatians. Paul does this as well where he just sets out the human life. This is what life is as it relates to without God. Uh, Recently, there's been some interesting articles and uh, we've had some conversations in the office about the moral decline of the United States. And uh, I hate news as it relates to, well, I just hate it. Never have liked it. And so uh, I force myself to watch it sometimes. But there is so much doom and gloom and the, the demise and destruction of America. And everyone has an opinion on whose fault it is and what's going on. Uh, it depends on a political party. It's the other political party's fault. It's the president's fault. It's which president you want to pick's fault. It's the uh, sexual emphasis fault. It's abortion's fault. It's the economy's fault. But it's centered, recently it's been the center, the center focus, especially from a Christian standpoint, is the morality fault. It's the moral failure. America has lost its compass, its true north. And so because of that, it's imploding on itself. And if America doesn't straighten this out, then America will no longer be a great nation anymore and God will no longer bless them. Uh, And if you disagree with me on this, I actually don't want to debate you afterwards. (laughs) Because I'm right and you're wrong. From a theological standpoint, from understanding what John is talking about here, I want us to view America in a different way. I do think that, um, uh, that the, the evangelical church has lost its fight. It was fighting for a moral society. That fight has been lost. And there's actually some good to it because we actually have the opportunity to reclaim the gospel. The gospel kind of got muddled and lost in American history, where the gospel is morality, it's us living in a certain way, or what we like to call Victorianism, uh, as long as we look and sound and, and live in this certain way, then God's going to be pleased with us, and that became the gospel, and now that America doesn't look and sound and live in a certain way, God is no longer blessing America, and the gospel has been lost. Well, uh, not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, as this relates to the book of John, and as we're going to see, Jesus actually enters into a very moralistic context where he has Jews and Pharisees and Sadducees, which we're going to learn all of those words coming up and what their historical meaning is, is people who have dedicated their lives by living and obeying the law and making sure 
other people are obeying the law to the level they think they should. And Jesus encounters them, and he uses very colorful language to describe them, but it doesn't show mercy and kindness towards them because of what they are offering in return. They're offering law so that they can be accepted before God. And Jesus enters into this and says, you are so blind by your own self-righteousness. You are so blind by your sin that you don't even see that the light of the world has come into you. And the point of John's book, as we're going to see, is that we are so corrupt. And there's no way that I can point my finger at a Pharisee or a legalist or a Sadducee because I am the Pharisee. I am the legalist. There's no way I can stand before God and say, those stupid legalists, they can't figure it out. I am the legalist. Without Christ, I am in their shoes. I am standing on the other side of Jesus. He is peering into my face. And I cannot see him for who he is. That is the point John is making. They are so blind. They have lost their way so much. They are so dark that when Jesus in the flesh stood right in front of them, they couldn't even see it. Let me read you a couple verses that speak to this. We don't have to turn them. Let me read them. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot it can't do it. Or Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, even when you were dead. Sorry. Uh, yes. Sorry, verse 5. And even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So darkness, again, uh, the concept of being dead or blind. Or Titus 3.3. 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passion, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by washing of the regeneration and the renewal of His Spirit. And then as it relates to John, Jesus gets done explaining the gospel and looks straight at these men who are standing with him face to face, and says to them in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He spelled it out to him in plain. You are not capable of coming to the light unless a power outside of you draws you to this. So what's interesting about John's narrative is he's actually pushing back against morality. They are presenting morality to Jesus saying, we should be accepted by God. And Jesus pushed back and says, you don't even understand that you can't even come to the Father unless he draws you. He actually shows very little patience to the moral and says to those who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. Well, as that relates to our current context here, and this is why I mentioned this, here in Franklin, is that the demise of the, mor- the, the, the moral demise of America cannot be fixed by upping the, the meter of morality. If they don't have Christ through the power of the gospel, they are what? Incapable of doing any act or love that's acceptable before God. So I look at America as 
it relates to its relationship to God and say to myself, why am I so concerned with the demise as it relates to a confusing gospel? My concern should be how can I make the gospel clear and concern myself with the gospel as it relates to it is by faith through Jesus Christ alone. God's concern is not that America fix itself morally. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear that we are to suppress evil and we are to protect the innocent, right? So I, am, I want that. I'm for that. But there's a difference from saying the moral decline because Christians have failed their job to uphold holiness and righteousness to a certain level, and it's Christians' responsibilities to hold the worlds to those standards. That's why America's collapsing versus our responsibility is not to uphold a moral standard and hold all of the world to that standard. Our responsibility is to preach Christ and Him crucified because that is the only light that brings people to Christ. Otherwise, these are blind people who cannot in any way bring glory and honor to God. If you do, uh, turn with me over to 1 Peter real quick. I want to uh, end with reading a couple of verses from Peter as we get ready to launch into the narrative of John. We're going to learn so much about Jesus. It's going to be, I'm really excited about it. John, uh, Peter says something here that's really encouraging to us. It goes back to my question in the beginning, who is Jesus? And it is hard. It's really hard to sometimes imagine the person of Jesus. No one here has seen him. Now, there's some books out there. Maybe they've seen him. They made a lot of money saying they did. But no one here has seen Jesus in the flesh, physically, personally. And Peter says something to us to encourage us, to strengthen our faith. To say that if you have the slightest little hope in Jesus, even if it's tiny, that you're trusting in Jesus alone today and tomorrow. This is what he says to us. Blessed be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that, precious, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter just reminds me that I haven't seen him. He did. But he's writing to a congregation that has not seen them and says, yes, I understand that life beats you down and that life is difficult and there are many trials. But he emphasizes something that just gives me hope. And what he emphasizes is the treasure and the preciousness of the faith that's been given to me. 
It says, if you believe in Jesus, that is a precious gold that is worth more than you can imagine. And through life, it is tried by fire. And through it, because it's a gift that is through the power of Jesus, he is the sustainer not only of my life, but as Peter is saying, he's the sustainer of my faith. He is the light of my heart. He says, what joy to know that you never physically saw him, yet you believe in him. Take hope in that. Take hope in that. And then lastly, turn over to first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1. I want to just read one last section. It says, His divine power, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us into His glorious and excellence. So we hear Jesus, who has lived forever, John 1. He's the creator. All things were created by him. In him is life. And he is not only life, the sustainer, the creator, sustainer, but he's the light that's coming into this world to shine in our hearts, to bring us into knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Peter says it's his divine power John 6.44, that has granted this to us. So what happens when life doesn't go the way we want it to go? Like tomorrow, when you have the sin of anger or doubt or fear or anxiety or greed or lust or hatred or pride, then what? Well, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. Verse 4 by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. All of that sounds awesome, and I want to do all of that. It sounds great. Think about it if you lived in a community where everyone did that, right? It would be amazing. Unfortunately, we don't live in a community like that. And this is what he says. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities needs to get their head in the game. Is that what it says? Needs to discipline themselves. Needs to realize that their eternal state, that their salvation is at stake. No, he doesn't say any of those things. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten, remember darkness, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What has he forgotten? The gospel. Think about it. You remove the gospel from the Christian life, you just remove the light of light, the light of life. And when you forget the gospel, then your life is going to look very different. And so when you try to think, well, I'm just going to discipline myself back into these actions so I can be loving and kind and gracious and making effort to serve the body. Continue reading. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
away. Oh, we're putting the, information, the emphasis back on Jesus where it needs to be. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Not the qualities back over here where he's talking about our virtue. He's talking about the qualities of faith in Jesus Christ. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's no way he's talking about virtue getting us into the kingdom. It's faith that gets us into the kingdom. We live in a constant battle of, as uh, Luther says, we are saint and we are sinner at the same time, simultaneously. And over here, we desire the truth of Christ and we desire the holiness and righteousness of Christ, but our flesh battles against us. And what Peter is saying is that the moment we give in to the flesh and the moment that we struggle against it and we have found ourselves living an unholy life, the response to that is Jesus Christ and what he's done to us. So this is why every week, and in my opinion, every day, we need to constantly force ourselves back underneath the power of the cross and remind ourselves of where we stand as it relates to the blood of Jesus Christ, who has cleansed us. This is why he says, you have forgotten that he has cleansed you from your former sins. I think it's such a powerful explanation of what's going on in John. When John says, he came into the world and he was the light. He is the one who brings our eyes open. So we actually see Jesus and say, wow, I cannot accomplish that on my own. If we teach morality and we pressure the ones around us into morality what we're actually doing is suppressing the light and we're pushing Jesus out. Jesus doesn't call us to morality. You'll notice here, it's a a lovely list. Self-control, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. I love it all. I want it all. And one day I will stand before Jesus, as Byron said this morning, and I will be like him. And... It's very enticing to try and do that now, but I can't do that now. No way. I tried, like for a minute, and it didn't work. I can't do that now. But what I can do is put my hope in Christ and every week be reminded of that. So as we go to the table and as we prepare to go to the table, once again, as we faced the weight, and we will face the weight tomorrow, of our own depravity, of our own wretchedness, of our own unfaithfulness to God, what we have to be reminded of is that Jesus came, who is the sustainer of life, into the world to bring light. It is the focus of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus then? If we answer that question, it's very simple. He is the one who sustains me physically. He's the one who sustains me spiritually. And he requires nothing of me Because the very thing he requires, he gifted me. And so we, day after day, rest in who Jesus is, which is our Savior and Sustainer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I stand here not because I am smart, not because I am clever, or because I'm righteous. I'm not any of those things. Paul actually says that you saved the foolish of this world And so I fit that perfectly. 
And through the foolishness of preaching, you use these words to do profoundly powerful things, which is bring dead men to life uh, from dark to light. And so, God, as we celebrate your work on the cross, may we once again this week remind ourselves of how precious it is that you have brought us into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.